Well, please do have that uh, passage open in front of you, um, Genesis chapter 13. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Um, it's been a while since I was here uh, last. Ruth is uh, nearly a year old now, and um, I believe she wasn't, she wasn't born the last time I was here. So it's great to be with you. Uh, thank you for your warm welcome, and uh, let's see what the Lord does amongst us this morning. A minister in the States used to uh, tell the story of two pleasure steamers that were carrying cargo from Memphis down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. And as at one point the two were traveling side by side, the crew of one began to make comments that the other was going at a bit of a snail's pace. Words were exchanged, challenges were made, and the situation turned into a race between the two boats. Eventually one boat began to fall behind as it ran out of fuel. But to the rescue came an enterprising young sailor who began to take cargo from the ship's hold and throw it into the oven. As they were catching their rivals up again, the other boat realized what was going on and began to use its own cargo for fuel as well. And um, as the story goes, that was the boat that eventually won the race. But both of them had burned much of their cargo by the time they arrived. Now, I hope that's not a true story. Because if it is, it's incredibly stupid. Um, losing any sense of our priorities under such little pressure seems like complete madness, doesn't it? The job of those sailors wasn't just to get to the end of the journey, but to conduct the journey in a certain way, to protect the cargo that they'd been given and deliver it. Now, I hope that none of us would be quite as crazy as those sailors. But nevertheless, there are circumstances and pressures that test our priorities, aren't there? Severely at times. Economic and financial pressures, disputes at work uh, or elsewhere, which often force us into situations where we have to make big decisions about our future, where we will live, what work we will do, and so on. And yet those very same pressures that force those decisions on us are the same pressures that are prone to twist and distort the sense of priority that we need to make those decisions well. And these are precisely the sorts of tensions and tests of priorities that we'll meet today in the passage that was read earlier. Because even in this very early part of the Bible, nearly 4,000 years ago, we find that the likes of Abraham and his nephew Lot also live in a world of economic pressure, they also live in a world of difficult relationships, and they too live in a world of difficult choices between differing and competing practical and spiritual priorities. And for us, of course, crucially, they too served the same Lord who forgave their sins and who asked only that they call on his name and trust him to fulfill his promises. Abraham and Lot will find themselves forced to make significant choices. And the priorities that will govern those choices, what they will hold tight and what they will hold loose, are all important. But before we dive into those issues, we ought to take a little time to familiarize ourselves with these men and their circumstances. Abraham, I'm sure you know, originally lived uh, in and around the city of Ur, down in the in the bottom right, in southern Iraq. His father was Terah, 
And he had two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And Lot was the son of Haran, and therefore Abraham's nephew. But we're told by the book of Genesis that while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. So it would seem that Lot, from that point onwards, is brought up by the wider family as an orphan. Uh, When Abraham received the call from God to leave Ur and move around the fertile crescent to begin something new for God in Canaan, Some of the family followed him as far as the the place that is confusingly called Haran, also at the top. But only Lot went with him as far as Canaan. So Abraham has been the closest family member to Lot. Almost like a, perhaps a respected older brother or perhaps even a kind of father to him. As for their circumstances, well, Abraham and Lot have been living the lives of uh, wandering pastoralists. Wealthy, but moving from place to place all the time with their herds and their households and their tents. Before our passage this morning, their last journey had been a disaster. And Abraham, at the start of our chapter, is a man in disgrace recovering from a huge lapse of faith. He'd traveled to Egypt with its consistent water supply from the Nile because there was a famine in Canaan. But on arrival, he'd lied to the border guards that his wife, Sarai, was his sister to protect his life. The border guards recommended her to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tried to take her into his harem of wives. And Abraham just let it happen and even profited from it, until the Lord forcibly pulled Abraham, Sarai, and the Pharaoh out of the mess, but not without Abraham being disgraced and expelled from Egypt with his wife and his possessions, as I'm sure you can imagine. Now, why have I spent time reminding us of that? Well, I think it's helpful for us to remember that the man who's going to teach us a lesson in faith today from this chapter and indeed the next chapter this evening. This man who's going to teach us a lesson in faith is himself a man who's recovering from a serious fall, a serious failure of faith. And why is that helpful for us? Well, because it means that you or I cannot believe anymore that the heights of faith that Abraham reaches in his life are beyond you. Perhaps you yourself feel that you are often faithless. Perhaps you right now are recovering from a serious fall, a serious failure, even disgrace. Perhaps you know someone who is, and you wonder if there's hope for their future. So think about this. Even though Abraham is going to screw up and be faithless again, in his life as you read on. His faith and his walk with God still grow throughout so that he becomes the Bible's great man of faith and is called the friend of God. It's wonderful. God is merciful and he perseveres with us. He is the Apostle Paul's great example of a man justified by faith. 
And we see this faith first in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 13. If you look down at them, you'll see that Abraham makes his way back to an altar, the place where he had first called on the Lord when he arrived in the land. And there he called on the Lord again. That in itself shows faith in the God who forgives. Doesn't it? Sometimes when we fall or when we consider ourselves faithless or weak or failing, don't we shy away from approaching God? We resist when the Holy Spirit calls us to pray. Perhaps we avoid fellowship. We avoid house group or church until we feel we've got ourselves sorted out. It's difficult to pray at those times. But our Lord... Jesus Christ did not give his life so that we could be reluctant to ask for God's mercy and his constant forgiveness, but so that we could have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and to draw near to God with a sincere heart and in the full assurance of faith. Abraham gets it right at the start of this passage, just as we can. He takes the time to seek God again in repentance at length and resettles his heart on the Lord. Abraham showed faith in the God who forgives us. And afterward, the man who'd shown his faithlessness in one situation now has the chance to show us what faith looks like in another situation. So that's where we are. Abraham and Lot are about to be faced with a set of circumstances that will force them to make a significant life choice. And it's going to test whether they have the priorities of faith. There are a lot of different occasions, different reasons for us to make those sorts of choices. Sometimes they're forced on us. Sometimes they're not. But for Abraham and Lot, these choices have been forced on them, initially by economic pressure, but as so often happens with Economic pressures quickly developed into disputes and arguments. We're told in verse 2 that Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. And then in verse 5, we're told, Now Lot, who was moving about with them, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land couldn't support them while they stayed together. They face pressures that result from their own success. Their household entourage has grown. Their available resources no longer meet their needs. And it's a good reason to have that problem because God has entrusted them with so much. He's blessed them. But it is a problem, nonetheless, and a challenge for their faith and their godliness. You know, the Bible encourages us to see the wealth that we have in other forms of success as well. As individuals and indeed as churches. It encourages us to see the wealth we've gained, the success we've achieved, the growth we've experienced as a blessing from God, but as a dangerous blessing, a dangerous blessing, one that brings with it a different set of challenges concerning what we're going to do with those things and what we're going to do perhaps to cling on to them under pressure. It was the Apostle Paul who very famously wrote 
in his first letter to Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In Abraham's and Lot's case, their wealth would test their faith by testing their priorities. What would they care about most? And what would they hold with a loose grip? And what we're going to see is that Abraham's faith prioritized peace. He held his wealth with a loose grip because he trusted God's promise. Whereas Lot prioritized his material comfort. He held his spiritual security with a loose grip and he ended up losing both. As we've read, Abraham and Lot's wealth in terms of livestock and people was so great the land couldn't support them. And their herdsmen began to quarrel. Perhaps there wasn't enough water for all of the flocks or perhaps they were disputing who had the right to the best feeding areas. And there's no hint of an argument between Abraham and Lot themselves. They didn't have a problem with each other. But the more there was strife between their herdsmen, the more there was going to be a wedge driven between them. And added to that, as our passage mentions, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land at that time watching the behavior of this family who have apparently come to their land at God's command. Abraham knew that they were going to have to part company. And I want you to put yourself in Abraham's position here. And as you do, remember that Abraham, you, are the one who has all the rights. You are the elder. You are the one who has the most wealth and the most livestock to feed. And Lot owes you everything. So what do you do? This is an important decision for your future. This is going to determine where you live. This is uh, going to determine whether you live in the nice area, the well-watered plain of the Jordan, or perhaps in the harsher environment on the hills where you depend on the rain and not on the consistent rivers. This is going to determine the size and the nature of your opportunities and your prospects. It's going to determine how hard you're going to have to work, who you're going to live with, and so on. Against that background, hear what Abraham says, because his priorities are all the more striking. Verse 8. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, Abraham has all the rights. He could have taken his pick of the pasture and sent Lot away, especially since God had promised Abraham the land, not Lot. And doubtless the quarreling would have continued. And the resentment of Lot and his men would have been locked in permanently 
against Abraham. But Abraham would have been financially sorted, and Lot would probably have been okay too. But Abraham knew there were spiritual matters at stake. And so Abraham prioritized peace, peace with his nephew. And he held his wealth with a loose grip. Abraham had the attitude of one of the Proverbs, which I I really love, and we'll put on the screen. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Isn't that vivid? Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So look at the lengths Abraham goes to in pursuit of peace. Firstly, it is Abraham who takes the first step to solve the problem. He takes the initiative before the dispute can spread. Secondly, he reaffirms the strength of their relationship. We are brothers, he says. And they weren't. Abraham was not superior, but he says we're equal, we're brothers. This dispute is a practical one, not a personal one, and Abraham wants to keep it that way. And finally, he suggests a solution, a practical solution in which he waives his own rights and disadvantages himself in order to secure peace. Now, many of the the pressures that face us with difficult choices also create tensions and arguments all around us. You may have seen it in your workplaces this year as people perhaps feel threatened by restructuring economic pressures and tempers fray. As easy as it is for us to forget sometimes, peacemaking and peacekeeping are supposed to be a major part of the Christian life. Something neglected often, but not by Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And Jesus, of course, is the one who gave up all of his rights as God to come and make peace with sinners by humbling himself even to death on a cross. He suffered injustice because he valued peace more highly than his rights. And it might be that peace is something we too need to pay for, like Christ and like Abraham. It may cost us in any number of forms. It might mean abandoning the need to prove that we're right, even if we are. It might involve making sure, or or abandoning the need to make sure we come out of the dispute better off. It might involve the effort of listening and understanding those who are coming from a different angle. It might involve the pain of ridding ourselves of prejudice or risking misunderstanding, uh, ingratitude, and failure for our efforts. But Abraham spotted that the priority of God in his circumstance was to maintain peace, not to secure his wealth, his comfort, his success, and his rights. He held those things with a loose grip to secure peace. But what about Lot? Abraham has uh, secured peace by giving Lot the first choice of where to go. 
and agreeing to accept whatever his choice is. How's Lot going to respond to his uncle's generosity? How much is it going to cost Abraham? He can take the best bits and Abraham's promise to accept. Or will he also waive the rights that Abraham has given him and show similar generosity, giving Abraham the best areas for his bigger flocks, uh, or perhaps trying to share the best bits out somehow? What are his priorities? Well, let's look back at the passage of verse 10. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So then, no such generosity from Lot. Okay? This is his big break. And he grasps it with both hands. The whole plain of the Jordan has secure and abundant water. So much so that it reminds him of the Garden of Eden. And of the Nile Delta, where they'd just been, of course, down in Egypt. So he'll take the whole plain of the Jordan. Thank you very much. And that seems to be the only consideration. That crosses his mind. Lot has prioritized his wealth, but he's holding his spiritual security with a loose grip. He's forgotten to even consider, to even think about the spiritual impact of his decision. And this would turn out to be the most catastrophic decision that he would ever make. And we need to consider this carefully. You'll know if you are familiar with this part of Scripture that the story of Lot's life from here on is one very quick and very deep downward spiral. Lot would eventually uh, leave his, um, his um, tent life and make his home in the city of Sodom. And although he never abandoned the Lord, never abandoned the Lord, still his attachment to his wealth, his way of life, and the cities of the plain would cost him everything, his wealth, his wife, and even his dignity. And what's more, our passage this morning is very quick to hint at the other considerations Lot should have had in mind. And you get the distinct impression that we're being told that the way Lot has made this decision here isn't just unlucky, but unwise. Firstly, we're reminded that Material security doesn't imply spiritual security. The garden of the Lord, that perfect environment where Adam fell into sin. Egypt, the plain of the Nile, was the perfect environment where Abraham had just screwed up so badly. And those are the comparisons he makes. The valley of the Jordan is beautiful. It's the perfect environment. It doesn't imply spiritual security. Then the passage reminds us that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain. Now, that wasn't something Lot could have known. But 
he would have known what we're told in verse 13, that the city was famously violent and base in all kinds of ways. At a later time, the prophet Ezekiel summed up the city's reputation in these words. Sodom was arrogant, overfed, perfect environment, right? Overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before the Lord. It was a spiritually dangerous place. And yet when he makes his choice, he doesn't even ask spiritual questions. He went there having given no thought to the spiritual implications of his choices. And the result was that even though he never joined in the sinning, he never did any good there either. And he ended up suffering greatly from the consequences of the spiritual barrenness that surrounded him. So let us learn this lesson. That what is truly good for us is what's good for our souls. What is truly good for us is what is good for our souls. And let's home in on this a bit more. Because there's a question which I imagine is in many of your minds at the moment. And because it's vital that we know how to apply this through our lives, for whatever reasons we might be facing choices and decisions, whatever pressures might be threatening to warp our priorities. Let's think about this question. What if Lot had chosen the hills? What if Lot had chosen the hills? Does that mean that Abraham would have gone to live in the plain? And would he not then have suffered the same fate that Lot did? What if Lot had chosen the hills? Hopefully this will help clarify our point. Because the answer is, we don't know. All right? We don't know. So let's face that. It's impossible to know where Abraham would have gone. Perhaps he would have gone down to the plain. Perhaps he wouldn't have done. But what I think we can say with certainty is Abraham, if he had gone there, would have gone there with quite a different attitude to Lot. We've already seen Abraham was holding his wealth loosely and his spiritual priorities tightly. That's the difference. In the next chapter of Genesis, we'll see Abraham coming to help the city of Sodom in a crisis, but then refusing a financial reward from the king of Sodom to avoid being in the king's pocket. Lot, however, was oblivious to the dangers and failed to even ask the spiritual questions. So tell me, when you choose the new job, the new location, the new relationship, what will be the spiritual consequences of those choices? If ever we need to relocate, we perhaps agonize over whether there are any good schools in the area. But are there any good churches in the area? Well, there are in this area. But if you move away, is that a consideration? A new job can provide opportunities to live for Christ and to witness for him. Or it can snuff out every opportunity for spiritual fellowship and growth. Have we prayed about those things? What about the new relationship where Jesus Christ will certainly not be center stage? There are places we might live, places we might 
frequent, where it is impossible for us to really be a witness for Christ, where a constant atmosphere of paraded sin will injure our spiritual life even if we don't join in with it. And of course, it doesn't mean we should avoid everything that's spiritually difficult. We'd have to leave the world. There'll always be one challenge or another, wherever we go, whatever we do. But we've got to be aware. We've got to ask the spiritual questions. Be aware of the spiritual dimension of our choices. We must pray about spiritual questions, dangers and opportunities. Not just does the job pay. Is the flat cheap and comfortable? Will this relationship be fun and give me security? And we have to be prepared at times to change, to modify our choices accordingly. Lot prioritized his wealth. He held his spiritual security with a loose grip. And he ended up losing both. Abraham, on the other hand, knew that God's priority was for making peace. And in order to achieve it, he was willing to hold his wealth with a loose grip. So one final question to close then. What was it that gave Abraham the courage to hold his spiritual priorities so tight and his wealth so loose? I can only imagine one answer, and that is that he had faith in the promises of God. People who trust that God will provide can afford to be generous, can afford to seek peace, even to their own cost. And God had promised Abraham, promised him that he would provide the land and that he would provide descendants through whom Jesus Christ would come to save the nations. And after Abraham had trusted God, God repeated that promise to reassure him he'd got it right. The promise was true. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are, and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you, and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abraham moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. And the rest of the Bible, of course, is the story of how God proved trustworthy and why Abraham's faith was well-placed, even though he didn't see it all in his lifetime. We, too, are the beneficiaries of that promise, since through those descendants God sent into the world his own Son, Jesus Christ, who would die for the sins of the world and increase the promise from a small land to a new heavens and a new earth. So let us pray that God would help us to prioritize the things that are his priorities and not burn the cargo on the way. Hold everything else loosely, trusting him to provide all our needs and forgive our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Mighty Heavenly Father, you are true to your word. Help us also to be true to your word, we pray. We fail and we struggle in so many ways and under so many pressures and we struggle to make choices. We ask 
that you would have mercy on us, that we would see what are your priorities. Help us to make choices well with you in mind and your priorities center stage, trusting you in every way. For your glory, we pray, and so that your cry of love would ring out from us through all the lands. Amen.